Hi, everyone, and welcome to Murder and Merlot. We are a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Michelle. How's it going, Michelle? Uh, it's hot again. Again. But it's cooler than last week, so I guess that's better. Mm-hmm. But I'm definitely sitting with an ice pack on my feet. I'm sitting on a damp towel right now, and I can't decide if that is a good idea or a bad idea. It's not the most <laughs> I will admit, but you got to do what you got to do. So you're just going to feel like you peed yourself through the whole podcast. Pretty much. So if I seem like I'm distracted or somewhere else, it's probably because I'm thinking <laughs> about my pee pants right now. <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, so are you ready to talk about Diane Downs? Yeah, let's get this bitch out of my brain. Let's yeah. do it. Shall we? And then we can move on because she's pissing me off. <laughs> oh man, she's the worst. Like, Seriously, we're going to make a scale. Mm-hmm. And her and Dennis Rader are like side by side. Like the I hate her. scale. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We've been focused on her for like two months now, reading and writing and all that good stuff yeah. and watching interviews and yeah. Oh my God, her interviews. God, I can't anymore. <laughs> yeah. They, I think I've watched all of them. I've watched them previously and then I watched them again today so I could get riled up again to be like, okay, let's do this. Nice. <laughs> yes. But nice. You know, after oh, that, that makes me happy. After the book club, I think I will be done with Diane Downs for a while. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. She is something else. We will put that one on the bookshelf and we will move on. <laughs> right. All right. Well, yes. should we start with some fluff and stuff before we get into yeah. the pretty of it all? Yeah. We got lots of answers. Like mm-hmm. I shared this on my personal page. I shared it. We got answers on our Facebook, on our Instagram, like mm-hmm. so many good answers. So thank yes, you guys. Thanks, guys. Um, the question was, if you were reincarnated, what would you come back as? And from Facebook, Jackie said, a panda, the fatter you are, the cuter you are. And I can be around people but not too close Love and it. relatable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just run right? around and munch on some bamboo sticks and right? they just live their best Look, chubby life. Right. Living the chubby life. Everybody thinks they're fantastic. And they're they- not aggressive. They're adorable. You know, <laughs> they, they give no fucks at all. Right. Right. I don't think they have a single thought happening up in there. And I, no, I except for like mm, bamboo, like <laughs> the most non-nutritious thing I could possibly eat. I only want that. <laughs> yeah. And I, my body has adapted to make use of it. Right. Perfect. Incredible. I love it. Um, I love it. I asked my husband just because I was curious. He wasn't that exciting, but he said, dogs have it pretty nice, but I'd be a mean dog. And I was like, but why can you elaborate? And then he's like, well, just because I'm grumpy. And I was like, so in your next life, like you are so grumpy that in your next life, you want to continue to be that grumpy. And I was just like, all right, you do you, man. (laughs) To be that dog that we hate. No, man. Exactly. Wiley. Basically, I guess he's living the best life right now already because he's like fed and taken care of and he gets to be grumpy and that's all he wants in life. I mean, really? And the grumpy dogs, I mean, we do give some pretty fun sedation too. So that's true. They do get the Maybe that's the good what he's drugs. going for. Maybe. <laughs> Not a bad idea, I guess. 
That's fantastic. Yes. Love it. Keep your responses coming. We love them. Mm-hmm. I love reading them. I love, love it all. It's great. Yes. Yeah. We appreciate it. All right. You ready yeah. for this? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I'm going to do the thing. Okay, friends, grab your glass and get cozy. Let's talk about murder. Tink, tink. All right. Diane Downs, part two. So last time we went over the shocking attack on Diane's three children, Christy, Cheryl, and Danny, who were all three shot in the chest while out sightseeing at 10 p.m. with their mom. Apparently they were shot by a shaggy-haired stranger who was never seen again. Things were very suspicious. And the more investigators looked into it, the more things pointed at Diane being the actual person who shot her children. We learned about her history with her family and men, her marriage, her relationship with Robert Knickerbocker, (laughs) and her time as a surrogate. We left off with District Attorney Fred Hughie requesting a delay from the juvenile court system based on Christy Downs' memory returning after suffering a stroke after being shot and her potentially being able to provide key eyewitness testimony that could potentially be the nail in the coffin on her mother's arrest. Um, Christy and Danny were doing very well at their foster home. And in late September, Steve Downs made a trip down to Oregon from Arizona to see his kids. And unbeknownst to District Attorney Fred Hughie, the Children's Services Division had granted Steve's unsupervised all-day visits. Great. Mm-hmm, right? During these visits, Steve would sometimes take the kids to see Diane's brother, Paul, and other family members of Diane's. Paul would then report back to Diane how they were doing. Paul would then turn around and tell Steve how lonely Diane was and how much she missed her kids. So then Steve, the ultimate moron, like he's a fucking idiot, Mm. but he contacted Diane and asked her if she wanted to see the kids. Keeping in mind that there is a court order keeping her children away from her and safe with her wonderful foster family. Yeah, for a very good reason, obviously. With good reason, right? Steve told her that she could only see them, not talk to them. He would meet her at a park and they would walk by. Of course, Diane agreed. She was waiting at the park when Steve showed up and Danny was asleep in the back of the car, so he called her over to the car. She somehow manages to convince Steve that looking at her children was not enough. Then she hugged Christy, and she also got the name of the motel he was staying at, and they agreed that she could come to his room later that day. Steve apparently was wanting her to sign custody papers, saying that he had sole custody of the two children, and who knows if that's why he agreed to the next part, if he was just buttering her up. But he then allowed Diane to take Christy, just her and Diane, for a ride. Diane was late to show up at the agreed time to return Christy, But eventually she did bring her back. But while waiting for her to return, Steve kept thinking about how Christy would be dead when Diane brought her back, if she returned at all. Yeah. What a dumbass. Mm -hmm. If you are afraid your ex-wife will kill your child, you do not let her take her. Like, at all. No. Horrible idea. So lucky that it turned out fine. But even though I've heard the story before, like every time that part comes around, I'm like, oh my God, this can't be good. She's going to, she's going to be dead. Her mom's going to murder her. Like there's no other explanation, but it doesn't happen. So it doesn't happen. But like, if those are the thoughts that are going through your head, why? A, first off, you phone the police and say, I fucked up Mm -hmm. and she's not home. Exactly. So you need to start looking for her. Right. And 
I'll deal with the consequences because I'm a dumbass. Exactly. But protect my child first and, and second. Don't fucking do that. <laughs> Just, oh my God. <sighs> The so meetup in the first place was not okay, but just like, yeah, here you go. Take this child unsupervised away wherever the hell you want. Like, right? Say to her whatever you want. Right? Ugh. Because, <clears throat> yeah, who knows what that conversation looked like? Oh, I'm sure it was not how Diane would paint it. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Ugh, stress well, me out. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> So after Diane's visit, Christy regressed. Her foster family noticed something was immediately different. Both kids went from being happy, normal children, despite their disabilities, to somber, meek children. And after her visit with her father, Christy regressed in her progress almost back to where they started. Christy held that secret well, though she did not give up that she had seen her mom. When Dr. Peterson questioned her, she just turned away from him. After Diane saw her kids, she was lonely or something. So she called up an acquaintance of hers and asked to come over. In Small Sacrifices, Anne Rule names him as Matt Jensen, but I believe this is a fake name. Um, his real name was never revealed to the media, but for the ease of telling the story, I will call him Matt. Matt and Diane's relationship was not a sexual one. He was someone she met after her kids had been placed into foster care and they hung out and talked a few times, never about the shooting. He told her he didn't want to talk about that, but that changed. (laughs) This night in October, something was different. She went to his house, talked about how lonely she was. They had some drinks and Diane lured him into bed. Can, Can you guess what she was planning to have happen? Hmm, I don't know. It's so hard to say. I'm sure she had no specific intention with this. Never. She has never had specific intentions for sleeping with men before. Right. So why start now? Exactly. (laughs) After her, her night with Matt, she then sent a letter to Robert Knickerbocker, her former lover in Arizona, revealing that she had seen her kids. But then being the manipulative wench she is, she then called the Chandler post office a whole bunch of times, insisting that Robert not open the letter. It's like a big red button you're told not to push. Oh, yeah. You're going to push it. So Robert opened the letter. Diane intended him to read it and report to authorities that she'd seen her kids and that Steve had facilitated the visit. She did not want Steve to have custody of her kids, so she manipulated Robert into reporting him. Diane and Steve were both found in contempt of court for violating Judge Foote's order of Diane not being allowed to see her children, and a court date was set for both of them. But in the meantime, Diane's plan had worked. She was pregnant again, and her friend, Matt, never wanted to see her again or be a part of the baby's life. He had been completely manipulated and was yet another victim of Diane Downs. Goddamn. This woman. I know. And like... I understand like being in tune with your body and knowing like knowing when you're about to cycle, like I I get it, Mm -hmm. but it's so abusive to your partner to do that to them and set them up like that. Like that's awful. Right. And she just got pregnant for the sympathy because, you know, she's going to be a pregnant lady and everybody's going to be like, oh, she couldn't have done anything bad. She, she is such pregnant. a good she mom. Is. Like, and look then, how cute she is. And one of her kids died. So she's yeah. just replacing it. Yeah. Because that's what she does. She thinks they're yeah. replaceable. They are not. 
Uh, they're not. <laughs> definitely not. Um, Diane and Steve both had their court dates. And Diane stood to potentially see a year in prison for violating Judge Foote's order. But at that crucial sentencing moment, Diane's attorney revealed to the court that she was pregnant. And Diane sat on the stand, doing her best to look like the angelic mother that she was, or that she wanted to be perceived as, smiling gently and rubbing her belly. Ew. Right? Insufferable wench. Uh, yeah. She then went on to tell the media that, no, it was not another surrogate, as they had assumed. She said this was very much a planned baby. Again, Ugh. manipulations, man. Mm -hmm. Judge Foote gave her a one-year suspended sentence instead of jail time. And in the meantime, she had been busy. She was filing multiple court claims against the Lane County Sheriff's Office, the Lane County District Attorney's Office, and the Mackenzie Willamette Hospital. Yes, that is correct. She was suing the hospital Ugh. that worked their asses off to save her children and miraculously saved two of her three children that had devastating injuries. Like, like those Christy, kids are so lucky to be alive. Christy was literally dead at one point. Yeah. They brought yeah. her back. You should and be so, so thankful. So you just choose to sue the hospital that... On what grounds? Major... For what reasons? I, I don't understand. Because Cheryl died and oh, okay. how they treated her. And, you know, like, there are so many yes. reasons that made sense to Diane. And so every the time fact somebody that her... dies of a gunshot wound in a hospital, they should get sued for that. That makes sense no. because it's their no. fault. They were the ones that pulled the trigger. Right. No, but they're the staff that has the PTSD and mm -hmm. high risks of suicide because they're the ones that deal with it. And then get blamed but for sure, it. Sure. Go ahead and sue mm -hmm. them. Sure. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm again. Yeah. As well as the lawsuits, she was still holding multiple interviews with different media sources, and she would continually show up at the sheriff's office to tell them new things she remembered. She actually sat for a two-hour-ish interview without her attorney present with detectives. In this interview, she made all sorts of claims, such as there was two men, not one, that shot her kid. And even that the man that shot her kids called her by name. So she assumed they were hired by Steve. That interview is something else. The shit she it's says. awful. It's unbelievable, honestly. Yeah, she is a monster. I swear to God. Like, I, I think that's the interview that she ends it by saying, well, I know who did it, so I'm going to leave. Bye. And walks out. I totally talk about that later. Okay, yes, perfect. I'm sorry it is if I that interview. the spoiler, but that's what, okay. What the fuck? <laughs> that's all right. Totally. Like, okay. Okay, but you're not going to share that very important information? Yeah, way to go. Mm -hmm. You think you would have shared that like months ago, but whatever. Anyways. Anyways. Christy, who had initially regressed after seeing her mother, started making huge leaps in her progress. Her psychologist, Carl Peterson, informed DA Fred Hugie that for every backward step Christy had taken, she now leapt forward two or three steps. They worked together through play therapy, art, and even got a copy of Duran Duran's album Rio, which had been recovered from Diane's car from the night of the shooting, as music can trigger memories as much as smells can. And finally, they got to a point where Dr. Peterson would give Christy little pieces of paper, and he told her that she could write down the names of the person who shot her and her siblings, put it in an envelope, and seal it. She then had a choice. If she didn't want anyone to read what she wrote, 
she could then burn the envelope. For many sessions, Christy would hold those envelopes until the very end. And as she walked out, she would throw them in Dr. Peterson's fireplace. Well done, Dr. Peterson. That is incredible. I know. He sounds like an amazing guy. Yeah. And just the way that he went about it, it obviously <laughs> helps so much. It's, it's incredible. And to have the idea to write it down and get rid of it. But the more you write it down, the more comfortable you are going to be with writing it down. Exactly. And the first time you write it down, it's going to be really difficult. But the more and more you do it, it just becomes natural. So it's going to be easier to- Exactly. And I think the more you write it down, the more you want to tell somebody. Right. Yeah. Right? Like that's how I would would feel. Like I've written this down like a hundred times and I've burnt it a hundred times, but 101, I want to start- telling people what I'm burning. Exactly. It's it's time to share it. Amazing. Right. In December, the district attorney's office found some money in the budget to hire two new investigators that would be beneficial to the investigation. One was a former LAPD homicide captain, Pierce Brooks. And after days of listening to interview tapes and reviewing the entire case, he agreed with Fred Hughie. Diane was absolutely guilty, but they had to prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt which is harder than proving to a veteran homicide detective. He told Hughie that they needed to recreate the scene for the jury. They would build a replica car out of styrofoam and plywood, and they would have life-size dolls to represent the children. And the other addition to the district attorney's team was Ray Broderick, who was a former Chicago street cop who had worked for the Eugene Police Department after leaving Chicago. He then went on to become an investigator for the district attorney's office. Ray Broderick could read people. He paid attention to their body signals, Not just what they were saying, but how they said it, where they were looking, their overall body language. His initial impression of Diane, through taped interviews and interviews she had done, was that her grief seemed plastic and that she was lying. The DA team would meet with Christy and Danny Downs multiple times so they could get used to them as they got closer to an arrest. Broderick was excellent with children, and Danny Downs warmed up to him immediately. Christy was much more cautious, but eventually she warmed up to him as well. When he brought out the life-size dolls that had been made to replicate the children at the trial, they were even dressed in the Downs children's clothing. Oh my gosh. Christy was able to place each doll where they had been sitting the night of the shooting on couches that were set to replicate where the car seats had been. When Ray Broderick asked Christy gently if she wanted to tell him what happened that night, she nodded but could not verbalize what she wanted to say. So he asked her if if she wanted to play the part of her mummy. Christy nodded. Quote from Broderick. Kinesthetically, it was all right. Christy walked to the front door from the rear of the car. She hunched over and she pointed her finger at Cheryl, herself, and Danny. Of course, there was no roof on the couch car, but Christy's body bent over as if it were there. Pow, pow, pow. Christy pointed her finger at the dolls. Emotion took over. She broke up and started crying. She said that she could tell me more, but she was sobbing. I told her that it was okay, that we didn't have to end quote. That breaks my heart. It guts me, man. Like, oh, I can feel that in like every cell of my body. That sweet baby is so brave. Like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, kills me. Yeah. Christy Downs would make a perfect witness as long as she learned to trust Fred Hughie as she trusted Ray Broderick. Fred Hughie was terrified of causing her more pain. But with Ray Broderick and Christy's foster family's presence and help, Fred and Christy became friends and she began to trust him and know that he was not asking her these things to hurt her, but to protect her. A secret grand jury had been held and multiple people shared their Diane Downs stories 
and the secret indictment was handed down. Diane Downs was being charged with murder, attempted murder times two, and assault in the first degree times two. In the state of Oregon, there are no degrees of murder, apparently. So that way she was just charged with murder. Whoa. It's just straight murder. Just straight up murder. <laughs> Not first That's degree, crazy. second degree, anything. Yeah, so okay. she just, just murder, which I thought was neat. I, yeah. And I wanted to look up, and I didn't actually, I kind of forgot about it, but I wanted to look up and see if that is still how it is, if it's still mm-hmm. just straight murder or... Yeah, I'd be very interested to know. Right? Maybe for book club, I'll look it up. Okay. Or are you Googling it right now? <laughs> I, I was thinking about it. <laughs> Go ahead. Google it. Okay. It's all good. I'll keep talking. Keep, you keep going. Um, the night of the indictment, Diane and her dad had got a huge fight and she had been kicked out of her parents' house. She spent the night at a bar and then slept in her car. January 28th, 1984, at two minutes to seven in the morning, Diane Downs pulled into the parking lot at the post office. And as she stepped out of her car, she was surrounded by police cars. Diane smiled at the police, and Doug Welch, the investigator who'd been on the case since the beginning, said, Today's the day, Diane. And Diane responded with, Oh, okay, in her best innocent little girl voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Diane was read her Miranda rights and placed under arrest. Search warrants were served concurrently at her parents' home, her car, a rented garage that contained Diane's things, and her locker at the post office. Diane pleaded not guilty to all charges, and her trial date was set for May 8, 1984. Diane believed that she would be free before her due date of July 7th, and she would have her baby, get her kids back, and live happily ever after. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely what's going to happen. <laughs> no. All right. Real quick. Oregon murder laws. The most serious form of homicide in the state of Oregon is murder. Many states divide the severity of crimes into first and second degree murder laws, but in Oregon, there is only murder and aggravated murder. Aggravated murder carries heavier penalties and includes murder in addition to something extra, which makes it a more serious crime. So interesting. What I can see, that is still the case. I mean, at least that is the very first article on Google that popped up in regards to that Google search. Interesting. <laughs> so interesting. I didn't really check the source or anything. Take it with a grain of salt, but that's bad. <laughs> it's interesting though. Like mm-hmm. murders, murders, murder, right? So it's true. I just didn't realize why that. complicated it with first and second degree and occasional third degree, right? I guess. Yeah. I just didn't know that was a thing in some states, or I don't know yeah. if that's maybe the only state, but interesting. Yeah. Very cool. So the trial. From the beginning of the trial, it was a bit of a circus. <laughs> we know what it's like for, you know, circuses and trials and, you know, we've been right with yeah. and family. So right, we have experience in this field. This was less like Charles Maybe. Manson leaping off of, off of a desk and trying to stab a judge with a pencil, but more like audience circuits, right. like, mm-hmm. Spectators. I'm sure we're just eating it up. <laughs> yeah. It seemed like everyone in the county wanted to be inside the courtroom to see the notorious Diane Downs. Some spectators were very much on her side, and others were so far on the other side. But either way, everyone wanted to be there. Media and spectators arrived at ridiculous times in the morning to line up outside the courthouse to ensure they got a seat for the day's events. On the first day, the courtroom had to be moved from a smaller one to the biggest one in the courthouse. And it stayed like this throughout the trial. The prosecution team decided to ignore the fact that Diane was pregnant. 
as it had nothing to do with the trial. It was a worry that the jury would feel more sympathy for Diane because of her pregnancy, but it was a risk they were going to take. The jury was not going to be sequestered. Lane County could not afford to keep the jurors in a hotel for the duration of the trial, but they were instructed to avoid all media sources. And with the amount of interviews and shit that Diane had done prior to her arrest, it would be impossible to find an impartial jury that hadn't heard about Diane Downs. Yeah, very true. Fred Hughie starts with his opening statements, laying the groundwork for means and motive, even reading a poem from Diane's journals, which was referred to as the masturbation poem. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Isn't that nice? As it focused on Diane's obsession with Robert Knickerbocker and the things she was doing to herself while obsessing over him. Yikes. Can you imagine reading that in court? Uh, no, I don't even want to read that title. <laughs> I'm, I'm uncomfortable saying the title, so. No, I can't imagine. Just picture this like stone-faced district attorney just, being like, like. Super serious dude. Yeah, just reading like, it out. And just, <laughs> especially because it's from a woman's perspective, <laughs> saying what she's doing. Right? Oh man, that's, yeah. that's a great image. <laughs> And the poem is long. Like, it's not a short poem. Yeah, it's no, like, two-sentence poem. No, <laughs> no. It's like a page and a half in the book. Like, yeah. it's not okay. Yikes. He also read letters that she'd never sent to Robert, where she assaults his wife with words and begs him to join her in Oregon. Through her writings, Fred Hughie reveals how deep Diane's obsession went. Diane's lawyer, Jim Jagger, presented his opening statement, doing his best to discredit the theories of the prosecution. He tried to portray his client in a good light, telling the jury that Diane has learned to hide her real emotions so she smiles at inappropriate times and even laughs when she should cry. On May 14th, the jury, Judge Foote, and Diane go on a crime scene field trip. They all board a school bus and go out to Old Mohawk Road where the shooting took place and then to the public workshop where Diane's red Nissan Pulsar had been parked for a year. Then once they're back in the courtroom, the prosecution called its first witness. Heather Plourd is interviewed about when Diane showed up at her house the night of the shooting. Then Heather's neighbor is next, describing what she remembers of the night, doors slamming and cars leaving her neighbor's yard at 20 minutes to 10. The third witness on the stand was a man named Joseph Inman. He had approached detectives early on in the investigation. He had been on Old Mohawk Road the night of the shooting. He hadn't heard any gunshots, but he had come up behind a red Nissan Pulsar, that have been driving incredibly slow, maybe five to seven miles per hour, which in Canadian, that works out to be about eight to 10 kilometers an hour. And the car was not being driven critically. He said that he had seen the car at 10.15. He followed her for two-tenths of a mile. Then when they reached a straight spot in the road, he passed her. Detectives were able to determine that the shooting happened shortly after 10 p.m., And remember, Diane had initially claimed in her first interview with police that she rushed to the hospital as fast as she could drive. She was four and a half miles from the hospital at the point where she was passed. It took her almost 22 minutes to arrive at the emergency room parking lot. This distance should have taken her six minutes if she was traveling speed limit, and less if she was speeding like she claimed to be. Right? (laughs) 22 minutes. 22 minutes. It took her to get there. Yep. I think she's a lying she-devil. Yeah. Things don't add up. Something is off there, yeah. Mm-hmm. Next on the witness stand were the ER staff, all of who reiterated the details that occurred the night of the shooting, what they did, and their perception of the mother who brought in her mutilated children. 
All the staff said that Diane did not act like a mother in shock or grief. She was cold, stone-faced, even smiling sometimes. It was off-putting, and her answers to doctors' questions put them on edge. She would make comments about her concern for her car or how her vacation was now spoiled. And she even said to one doctor, before any tests had been performed to determine if Christy had any brain damage, was, quote, I know Christy had sustained brain damage, and I don't want you to sustain her life, end quote. Oh, my God. I can't, ah. I can't even. <laughs> she had said to an x-ray technician that she didn't want her picture taken without makeup on. This is while her children were dead and dying in another room. And while listening to all the details of what her children went through during triage, surgery, and recovery, some of the details being quite shocking and gruesome, Diane sat at the defense table, tossing her hair around, doodling pictures, and looking on serenely like she was the queen watching a tennis tournament. Like, what the fuck, Diane? Go eat glass, Diane. I <laughs> hate you. <laughs> yeah, dude. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my god. That pisses me off. So, like, infuriating. The next witness called to the stand was one of the bravest little girls on the planet. Christy Downs. Exactly 361 days since she clinically died, she was called to testify. Can you imagine the stress that this little superhuman was under? She is described in the book as having the rawest kind of courage, and I cannot agree more. Mm -hmm. Not only are you testifying in a murder trial at nine years old in front of a gallery full of onlookers and reporters, 15 jurors, a judge, bailiffs, lawyers, court stenographers, the works, right? But also your mother, mm -hmm. who is the accused woman that shot your siblings and yourself. Like, it makes oh me God. want to barf just thinking about it. Yeah. She's so brave. Mm -hmm. Every little aspect of that is immense stress in itself, but there's so much yeah. compiled into one, one situation that she, as a nine-year-old, now has to face. She's nine, man. Like, ugh, can't even get over it. Mm -hmm. but she did it. Mm -hmm. She took the stand and was gently questioned by Fred Hugie, who asked her about her life, what her teacher's name is, what her favorite color is, and worked his way up to asking all about the night of the shooting, what they did, where they went, who was in the car, what color the car was, was there any music playing in the car? And Christy answered each question as well as a nine-year-old who had suffered a stroke could. Just so brave. She got emotional when she was asked if the car ever stopped, but she answered yes. She then went on to describe through tears how her mom got out of the car, pulled the lever to open the trunk, then walked to the trunk, and when she came back from the trunk, she leaned across the seat, she shot Cheryl, then leaned over the back seat and shot Danny. From the court transcripts, quote, do you remember when you got shot? Yeah. Who shot you? My mom. End quote chills goosebumps yeah and there was not a sound in the courtroom no one breathed no one moved all focus was on christy and the words that her and fred hugie were saying and almost everyone in the courtroom was crying hugie went on to ask christy if there was music playing while her and her siblings were shot and she said yes hungry like the wolf was playing he asked if anyone had asked her to lie about this she'd said no and he confirmed that what she said was the truth Christy said, yeah. And his last question for her was, Christy, do you still love your mom? She answered, 
Yeah. Because of her stroke, yeah, was easier to pronounce than yes. So lots of her answers were yeah. And yeah, another thing, she wasn't able to speak for quite a while after her injuries and her stroke. Yeah. So she's having to relearn how to speak again, and she can only do so much just to add another level of difficulty and stress. Yeah. 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 And she was then cross-examined by Jim Jagger, and he did his very best to confuse her. But Christy did her best to answer his confusing questions. He went on for a long time, and Christy tired out easily. But the more he questioned her and jumped topics and tried to confuse her, the more he lost the jury. Christy was on the witness stand for over six hours. And Fred Hughie asked her a few more redirect questions. And I'm going to read from the redirect. Quote, do you know who shot Cheryl? Yeah. Who was that? My mom. How do you know that? I watched. Were there any strangers there? Anybody you didn't know? No. How about Danny? Was there any stranger there when Danny was shot? No. Who shot him? My mom. How about you? When you got shot, were there any strangers there? No. Who shot you? My mom. Do you know that because you saw her do it? Yeah. He asked her a few more questions that she couldn't answer from fatigue, and he ended his questioning. Judge Foote thanked her and told her she could step down. What an amazing little human. Incredible. So strong. Like, like I, again, I can't even. Man. And I know it's the defense's job to have to ask those questions and everything, but it also makes me so mad and just like, how could you do that to a nine-year-old and try to confuse her and get her to say something else? And when it's so clear that she knows what happened and her mom was- She knows what happened. She watched her mom shoot herself and her siblings and one died. And yet you're trying to spin the story and confuse her and make her mess up. Like, I know that's their job, but it just infuriates me that- I mean, they, it's just, how, did, how do you, how do you sleep at night? Where right. do you sleep at night? Like, how do you go home from a night in court, like from a day in court and be like, today was a good day. Right. I tried to confuse a nine-year-old. Like, Ugh. yeah. Try to convince a nine-year-old yeah. that it wasn't her mom that shot and killed her sibling. <sighs> yeah. And Jim Jagger, that was like his his MO for questioning, he did like to jump around topics mm-hmm. and he didn't just do it with Christy. He did it with all of, all of the witnesses and just tried to confuse them and yes. redirect them into saying something different. But yeah, yes. it's brutal Those when it's to a nine-year-old. Defense attorneys do, and it's frustrating in most cases, but it just, it feels so wrong when it's a child. So, so wrong. So the trial continued. Dr. Peterson, Christie's psychologist, was interviewed, the doctor who performed Cheryl's autopsy, and then policemen, detectives, investigators, and Steve Downs all took the stand. Court adjourned for the weekend, and on Monday, when the court returned, the courtroom had been transformed with the mock-up of Diane's car in front of Judge Foote's bench, with the life-size dolls in the seats. As Fred Hughie talked, he unconsciously brushed the hair out of the Cheryl doll's eyes and cradled the dolls in his arms when he talked about them. Jim Jagger on the other hand, tossed them around, letting them land on the floor, as if to demonstrate that they were just dolls. But the jury cringed every time, and it made him appear callous to the jury. Jim Pax, the forensic scientist, was called in to walk through the crime scene. He used a variety of tools to demonstrate how close the gun was to the children when they were shot. He went through the multiple tests that were performed on the car during processing, and he placed the dolls in the exact positions they would have been in to receive the injuries that they did. 
and then with a mock-up gun, he demonstrated how they were shot. The jurors were invited to get a closer look, and then Jim Pex revealed that in Diane's car, the tape deck would not play unless the keys were in the car. Christy very clearly remembered that Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf was playing when the shootings happened. Now, if you remember back to part one, Diane claimed that she had the keys in her hand and feigned throwing them to get away from the shaggy-haired stranger. But that would have been impossible if the music was playing when the shooting occurred. Diane's story continued to crumble. I love that detail. Just saying that. Me too. Like, yes. And Diane tries to explain away everything, but I have yet to hear her explanation about why this is. how that could be possible. I haven't heard her try to defend that at all because I think she's like, yeah, okay. (laughs) She, she talked in circles about it. Like she's like, well, yeah, of course the keys were in the car. Like I didn't say that. Oh Jesus. It's like, there's a literal video. I just pretended that the keys were in my hand and I threw them like, well, of course, right off. (laughs) It's like, there's a literal video of you reenacting it and pretending to throw your keys. So yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But okay shit human being. Mm-hmm. Jim Pex then went through the identical markings on the casings found on the road as the ones found in Diane's closet. He also demonstrated that if the 22 Ruger was placed in its case, it would float in water. So if it had been tossed into the river, which was right next to Old Mohawk Road, it might never be found because it would have been carried away. He sprayed the interior of the car with luminol to showcase the blood splatter patterns and that how there was none on the outside of the car or the steering wheel, which there should have been had the shooter been outside, and if Diane had been shot in the arm by someone else. Because if she'd been shot in the arm, instinctively you would touch your arm. Absolutely. Yep. But had just been shot, and then you would touch the steering wheel, and you would race to the hospital. Exactly. Yep. But there was not a speck of blood on that steering wheel. That does not make sense. And more witnesses came through the stand, confirming and reiterating what had been proven with forensic evidence. And then, I hate this part, Hmm. the court clerk brought in a stereo, and Hungry Like the Wolf was played in the courtroom. Nobody said anything, they just played the song. Diane, sitting at the defense table, smiles this huge, disgusting smile, and proceeds to fucking bop and tap her foot in time to the music, just rocking out to her favorite song that was playing while her children were shot. This bitch, I can't, I can't even. Ugh, you literal swamp donkey. Like, thanks for ruining a good fucking song. <laughs> no, no, I have bad feelings about Hungry Like the Wolf now, and I liked that song before. I did too, and it's been playing in my head for two months now, and it's it's not bringing good thoughts along with it. It doesn't bring me joy anymore. It's not, not anymore. it's not okay. Not anymore. Thanks, Diane. The courtroom was completely silent when the song ended, and the jurors all looked ill. Can you mm, can you even just imagine being a juror and hearing, like, this is the song that was playing when her children were shot, and she's just bopping, just Especially loving after it. Christy's testimony, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and she's like... Woohoo! Love like, me some Duran Duran. Yeah. yeah. This is my jam. Like, yeah. No. Fuck off and die. Like, right? Oh my God. The trial continued with more police officers, Diane's brother, Paul, who was a very hostile witness, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> uh, short term ex lover 
And then the court hears Robert Knickerbocker's testimony. Diane does her best to look uninterested in him, but there is a tenseness about her that wasn't there throughout the rest of the trial. And one of the things that was said was if she got upset, the color rose on her neck. And the whole time Robert was testifying, her color, like her neck was like beet red. Right. But she's still smiling and like, oh, whatever. It's fine. This is fine. Again, having those people, (laughs) right. Having those people in the courtroom, like Ray Broderick, who pick up on reading people and their body language and their cues, like they notice those things. So Mm -hmm. absolutely, that's huge. Robert details their affair, how it affected his life, how she continued to pursue him even after he made it clear he was done, the incessant letters and calls, and he himself said he had no interest in being a dad to her kids. He tells about the night of the shooting when Diane called him and how she did not seem upset at all about her children being shot. In fact, she didn't even bring it up right away. It was like a sidebar in the conversation. Oh, move to Oregon. Like, we'll be so happy here. Oh, BT dubs. Someone shot my kids tonight. Right? Like, no big deal, though. This doesn't affect our relationship, so it's fine. Right? You should still come here, and we can live happily ever after. Mm -hmm. He went on to tell the court how he feared for his and his wife's safety after learning of the shooting, because if she could shoot her kids, what was stopping her from returning and shooting either one of them? Mm -hmm. No kidding. Especially the wife. Like, could you imagine being the wife? She'd be like, yeah, my life's in danger. Totally crazy. Um, If I was her, I'd be happy that she was getting locked up for sure. Absolutely. Like as soon as possible, please. And thank you. Yeah. I'll testify whatever you want me to do to get her behind bars, right? Exactly. Just please keep her there. After Robert's testimony, there was hours of taped interviews with Diane that were played as well as a taped diary. It took days to go through all of her ramblings. The last of the taped interviews that was played was the one where she showed up at the police station without her lawyer, and they talked for hours. She kept changing her story. And this is where she says what you (laughs) talked about. Where at the end, she claims to know who the shooter was. And when detectives question that, you know this person? Diane says, yes, I do. And I'm leaving because I do. Goodbye. And she storms out. The jury is like, what the fuck? Uh huh. But this is how the prosecution rested. So that was like beautiful. Just one, <laughs> right? Like, just like I'm just right? gonna leave this here for you. Uh, here yeah. you go. There you go. I think she's she's guilty because what mother right? who knows who the shooter is would just leave out that minute detail, tiny detail, right? You know, just mm-hmm. for a couple months after the shooting, just I'm gonna hold on to that nugget. I just felt like through reading all of this, I kept feeling bad for the jury. Like first you have to sit through like a child murder case. Yeah. You have to sit through the testimony of Christy Downs. And then you have to listen to Diane Downs's fucking tapes for hours. Oh man. And the shit that comes out of her mouth. It sounds like <laughs> hell. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I feel for them. That and, would be so tough. And to keep your attention on all of her ramblings and all of the things and try not to get confused and be like, right. They and would have lost me as a member of the jury. They would have lost me after Christie's testimony. I would have been like, she's guilty. I'm done listening. Right. And her story changes so much. And she talks so much that it's like, it'll be going through and she'll tell the story again. And then it's like, and if you remember, this detail is different from what she originally said. It's like, oh my God, I forgot about that because I'm trying to keep track of like mm-hmm. 10 other details that she had also talked I about. Know. And now it seemed to be different. Like it's, 
it's insane. It was brutal. It's like, you got to be paying attention, but it's like, uh, I really don't, I don't want to because <laughs> this is awful. Right. But it's my job. <laughs> and then after the prosecution rested, the defense gets their turn, right? Mm-hmm. And so then this poor jury has to listen to the defense witnesses. The first witness being Diane Downs. Ugh. I right? imagine. And Diane is so happy to tell her side. She talked about her childhood, her relationship with Steve, her pregnancies, her kids, her relationship with Robert, you know, because she really wasn't that interested in him. Things have been really blown out of proportion. Mm -hmm. That's why you got a tattoo of a rose in his name. No big deal. He was just no big deal. It wasn't that much of an effect on me. No, he was just another side piece. Another married man on a notch in her belt. Yep. 100%. She talked about anything and everything. She spent four and a half days on the stand. Goddamn. Where she tried to smooth over, correct, and modify things for the jury so they understood her better. She rambled on and on about absolutely everything. And on cross examination, she is harsh with her answers to Fred Hughie. And man, some of the shit that came out of this woman's (laughs) mouth, it's. A lot. A lot. She claimed to have pulled over after leaving her friend's house the night of the shooting while she was sightseeing in the dark Mm -hmm. to balance her checkbook. Mm, Yep. (laughs) That part. Who the fuck does that? (laughs) Oh my God. I have so many feels about that. (laughs) I know. Like, hey, you're sightseeing in the dark with your kids. Like, come on. Right. Uh, But now I'm going to just... Oh, my checkbook needs to be balanced. So right. I'll do that. I could just drive on the middle like of a road in the dark. A road that they've never been on before, pitch dark, middle of nowhere. You could drive another what like 20 minutes and you'd be home and then you could balance that very important checkbook, but no. You just got to stop dead right then and there and it's got to be done. Yeah. Yeah. On a road that has hardly any shoulders and right. you know, it really wouldn't be safe to stop on. No. Like the guy that had followed her for a while when she was driving so slow, he had made comments about like he had to follow her for so long because the road was dangerous and difficult to pass on. So yeah, that Mm -hmm. sounds like a great place to just pull over just to do some quick legit book work. Yeah. Legit. And uh, she was exasperated when the district attorney claimed or asked her about, why don't you remember this? Like, she's like, it was like a year ago. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, then the night that your children were shot was not significant enough for you to remember. Right. Okay. Diane got to be very defensive and hostile with Yugi's questioning. And she argued with him as he went through her psychological profiles that called her a deviant sociopath, a narcissist, and that she had a histrionic personality disorder. Mm -hmm. She argued like the whole time. She's like, no, that's not true. Where are you getting your information? Like, oh my God. She is madder than a bag of ferrets, I tell you. I love it. (laughs) Madder than a bag of ferrets. Yeah. Apparently, it's an expression that I've heard. (laughs) I love it. That's fantastic. (laughs) I have personally been bit by a ferret before. So if there was angry ferrets, I don't think I'd want a whole bag of them. (laughs) A whole bag of them. (laughs) Here you go. (laughs) Sorry, it's such a funny image the more I think about it. 
I know it's good. This is why you're here. Comic relief. Cause Diane Downs is like <laughs> trying <fucking> terrible. Palette <laughs> cleanser. Just imagine a bag of ferrets. <laughs> Angry ferrets. Yes. <laughs> the defense put most of its faith in Diane's testimony. They only called a handful of other witnesses, including Diane's mother. And finally the defense rested. As closing ar arguments went on, Diane would laugh each time that Fred Hughie reminded the jury of each piece of damning evidence, and the bigger the blow, the louder she laughed. Jim Jagger completed his closing arguments. He did his very best to unweave the web that Fred Hughie had put together. He made sure to bring up that Diane had been driving slower because she had to wrap her arm in the towel to stop the blood flow, which Diane could not recall doing, but that must have been when Mr. Inman had seen her driving. He tried to break apart all of the prosecution's case and doing his best to discredit the motive. He did announce at the beginning of the trial that he would name the killer, but conveniently, he seemed to have forgotten that he'd promised this, so he oh. never revealed the name. That is super convenient, hey? Fred Hughie had one last chance to fix the holes that Jagger may have popped in his case, and in one last dramatic moment, while he spoke, he picked up the bloodstained towel that had been wrapped around Diane's arm when she arrived at the hospital, and quote from Small Sacrifices. He very carefully folded it in half, end to end, in a smaller rectangle, then took that rectangle and folded it opposite corner to opposite corner to fold a triangle. The blood spots matched up. He shows the jury that the darkest stain is in the first layer that touched Diane's arm, and each layer has less. All the perimeters match. What a nice, neat pattern for someone to wrap themselves with. This is why Diane lost no blood in the car. How extraordinary that she should grab frantically to wrap around her arm and come up with a perfectly triangular bandage. Hughie suggests that Diane prepared that towel bandage beforehand, laid her arm in her lap atop the towel, shot herself, and then wrapped the ends neatly around her injured arm and tucked them in. Even as her children gasped for air, she had taken great care to protect herself. End quote. And now, if that's not a mic drop, I don't know what is. Boom. <laughs> right? He's like, here you go. Again, I just love that. There's just some huge points in this trial that are just like, they blow my mind. And they're just I know. so perfect. And I'm like, yes. And that's one of them. And that, that towel was a big question point because mm -hmm. they couldn't figure out the blood pattern on it. And so Jim, Jim Peck's the forensic guy, he sat and folded that towel for mm -hmm. hours trying to figure it out. And he finally figured it out. And he was like, ta-da, it was a perfect triangular bandage. How convenient. Yeah. And right after the shootings had happened, one of, uh, sorry, I don't remember who it was, but one of the detectives said right away, if I had to guess, the mother's injury was on her forearm right here on her mm -hmm. non-dominant mm -hmm. arm. So basically it was like, if you were to shoot yourself, where would you shoot yourself? That exactly. Is, that is the exact spot that's yeah. going to cause the least amount of damage. You know, you still have a, a gunshot wound, but you can still mm -hmm. manage after that. Right. So yeah. right away, she, he was like, that's where it's going to be. And guess what? That's where it was. And they don't think that she shot herself the same time she shot her kids. They think that, mm -hmm she shot herself like within minutes of the hospital. Right. Get closer. So, you know, lose less blood, less. Or in case she bleeds out, right? Well, exactly. Yes. Yes. So the jury is given their instructions and they're excused to discuss and reach a verdict. 
Everyone watching over the last six weeks waits with bated breath, either for news of Diane's baby being born or the verdict, whichever could come first. Like either could come anytime. <laughs> what great cinematic timing. <laughs> right? It's just, like it should be, like there was a movie actually made that's right. stars Farrah Fawcett about this and it's like based on this, but we just wish like, how do you was... not make a movie out of this shit? Exactly. We just wish it was actually fiction, but unfortunately yes. this all happened. It's not. 36 hours after the end of closing arguments at 1220 AM, the jury had reached a verdict. Shortly after 1 AM, a smiling Diane was led back into the courtroom. She appeared very confident that she would soon be free. Judge Foote reads the verdict. Guilty of attempted murder in the first degree. Guilty of a second count of attempted murder in the first degree. Guilty of first degree assault. Guilty of first degree assault. And guilty of murder. Diane is pale, but still smiling. She is remanded into custody until sentencing. Ten days later, Diane Downs is escorted to Sacred Heart Hospital in Eugene, where she was induced. And at 10.06 p.m., Diane delivered a healthy baby girl into the world. She named her Amy Elizabeth and got to hold her for a little while. And then the baby was taken from her and became a ward of the state. Two months later, she appeared in court again, this time lacking the ever-present baby bump that had been with her through the trial. She was allowed to speak before the sentence was delivered. She spoke about her innocence and how the community should remain vigilant in looking for the man that shot her kids and to never let their guard down. And she, of course, rambled on for quite a while. Of course she did. Don't give this woman a microphone. Don't let her speak, man. Right? She will not stop. <laughs> she won't stop. Judge Foote spoke to the court with a force and passion that he had kept in check for the trial. He spoke about how he and the court grieves for Cheryl and feels sorrow, anger, and frustration for Christy and Danny. He would not apologize for showing emotion through the trial, which was ironic because the defendant clearly lacked those emotions. He spoke about how Diane had objectified her children and was able to get rid of them like useless baggage. He said she should never be in a position of freedom. She does not deserve to be free. And then he ruled that the sentences would run consecutively so that the future parole boards would not forget the enormity of her crimes. She was sentenced to life plus 50 years with a mandatory minimum of 25 years. His final words were to Diane directly, quote, the court hopes the defendant will never again be free. I've come as close to that as possible, end quote. Love it. So this should be the end of the Diane Down saga, right? She should be rotting in a jail cell to be forgotten about forever, right? Mm -hmm, right. Yeah, wrong. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Our story continues. <laughs> <laughs> Diane was to serve her prison sentence at the Oregon Women's Correctional Institute in Salem. And the day she was transferred from the county jail at Eugene, she went on a tirade, <laughs> ripping up letters that she had written and never sent and destroying her cell. And when it came time for her transfer, she strutted out of her holding cell ensuring to accentuate her hip movements and long stride. And she wore rage on her face and skin tight jeans with over the knee leather boots with a six inch spike heel and a low cut white sheer top with a bra that barely did anything. She's just like jiggling away. Right. As only Diane Downs can. <laughs> uh huh. She looked as if she was on the prowl for a man, not on her way to a women's prison. Um, she definitely did not look like the innocent, bereaved mother that she had tried her best to play. Maybe she wanted inmates, wanted to intimidate her fellow inmates upon arrival. 
I don't know. Who knows with Diane? Who knows what thoughts are happening up there? What her one last show. Right. Exactly. It's a look at me. Yeah. And like, I'm pretty sure she had to call her mom to get her to bring her that outfit. Can you well, imagine? You're not going to just have it handy, I'd imagine. No. Like, hey, mom, I want the tightest jeans that are in the back of this closet with my whore boots. Yeah. And you know the ones. You know, <laughs> you know, you know the ones. Yes. The ones that you told me to burn. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that white see-through top. Mm-hmm. Could you bring that for me? That'd yeah. be great. Right. But forget about the bra. Don't need that. Right. Yeah. She actually even cut her hair like punk rocker short to go with her outfit. Wow. This was yeah. like it was extreme. The, it was a big deal. <laughs> yes. Diane kept doing interviews after her, after her incarceration and continued to maintain her innocence. She applied to do college courses while she was behind bars, having been quoted saying, Personally, I think I'll probably do well in college here. I want to be a teacher. I think probably something like family development. Or something along those lines. Oh, no. End quote. <laughs> right? Uh, God, she's the worst. I know. The things that come out of her mouth. It's like, I know. It's just like, dude, when she went into pre-med, like, no, no, God, no. No. Like, stop it. Just stop. Please, just rot in hell and don't bug anybody else. Just, right? Just be quiet. You <laughs> have permanent laryngitis, so oh, no one has to hear you speak anymore. That, that would be, be great. Lovely. Let's put that into the universe. <laughs> <laughs> she was also sure that she'd be let out in five to seven years. Sometimes yeah. even saying that she would be out in six months to two years when her appeal was successful. Right. But after her first parole hearing in 1985, it was a swift decision. She would absolutely not be considered for parole again until 2009. Nice. Yeah. Diane had been incarcerated for two years and had adapted well to life in prison. She was neither liked or disliked. She just existed without getting shanked, which I guess is a positive for her. I mean, I feel like that's where I would want to be if I was ever in prison. Just like, like nobody pay attention to me. <laughs> right? I am and not please here. don't shiv me in the yard. I'd appreciate it. <laughs> At first, she did receive some threatening letters from other inmates because other mamas do not like or appreciate child killers. Yeah. Yeah, you would so, think she would have a lot tougher of a time in prison. Yeah. She was quite lucky to not run into more problems. Like, No kidding. Must have been the right crowd that was in there or something. Mm-hmm. She started working on a book, and her most frequent visitor besides her family was Richard Cohn, who was her official biographer. Judge Foote had been explicit in his instructions to Diane the day of her sentencing that if she were to ever write a book, any proceeds she made would not go to her, but to pay fines to be levied by the court for the cost of the investigation and the trial. But the book was also stopped by the Slayers Act, sometimes referred to as the Son of Sam statutes, which prohibits criminals from profiting from the publicity of their crimes, often by selling their stories to publishers. This law often authorizes the state to seize money earned from deals such as book or movie biographies and paid interviews and use it to compensate the criminal's victims. Which is fantastic. I love that. As it should be. 100%. Right? Diane still never refused a media visit. She even had a video call with Oprah and Anne Rule because he did. She was pissed by Anne Rule's book. Pissed. And the light it portrayed her in, like, not happy. And guys, if you want some late night entertainment, go look up the interview on, on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. 
And Oprah's hair is amazing. For real. Like, I don't even know how she got it to stand up that big. Oh my God, it's huge. It looks like she was in a windstorm just standing in one direction for about eight hours. It's amazing. Right? And it doesn't move. It doesn't. It's like, it's a helmet. Like, it's like three helmets. It's amazing. Everything about that interview amazing chef's kiss I loved it like so good the only thing that I wish had been in there more was I wish that Oprah had let Anne Rule talk more but Diane was too busy yapping for real in the very beginning Anne Rule got to say some things and her and Diane had some back and forth which was hilarious oh my god Anne Rule is a savage she's she's amazing oh my god (laughs) shit she said to Diane I like was audibly like gasping and I was like oh damn like it was amazing and then Oprah like went off on her too and just just calling her out left right like it was amazing so definitely go watch that it's definitely go watch it so entertaining you you can't sleep tonight go turn on YouTube and watch Diane Downs take on Oprah and Anne Rule because yeah it's worth it (laughs) amazing yes something changed on July 11th 1987 though Diane was apparently done with prison. She formed a plan and she followed through. She'd been watching and paying attention. And on this morning, she acted. There were two 18-foot high fences topped with razor wire that surrounded the prison. And the second fence was wired with an alarm that was very sensitive. If a strong wind blew or a bird landed on the fence, the alarm would sound. And it didn't evoke much of a response from the staff. It was a Saturday morning and Diane went to the yard when it opened at 8.30. She brought a towel to rest her head on, went to her favorite spot in the corner and laid on the bench. There were two other prisoners in the yard that morning, Louise Seifer and Gretchen Schumacher, and they were sitting together at another bench with their backs to Diane. These three women got along well and talked often, Gretchen more than Louise, but still often. Diane walked past the two women and said, I'm going now. And the two women did not turn to watch whatever it was she was going to do next. They wanted no part in her shenanigans. Mm -hmm. And we all know snitches get stitches. So they just carried on with their conversation. (laughs) And not my problem. (laughs) Right? No. Not my circus, not my monkeys. Not today, Satan. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Literal Satan. Diane. Literal Satan. Diane was dressed in jeans and a striped blue shirt. And you could tell that she had another shirt on underneath. Actually, she had on three pairs of underwear, two bras, two shirts, two pairs of socks, white tennis shoes, and under the towel she was she carried was a pair of leather gloves and a gray stocking cap. Definitely up to something. Wow, yeah. Not, not suspicious <laughs> at all. Right? <laughs> She's walking through the courtyard like, don't be suspicious. Don't don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't and like the marshmallow man Don't with all of her clothes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Louise couldn't help but steal a glimpse at Diane, and she was headed to her favorite picnic table near the fence, but she quickly turned away. Then there was a clanging sound, and the alarm sounded. And no guard seemed to notice that on the other side of the fence, heading towards the men's penitentiary, was Diane Downs. It was 8.40 a.m. Oy vey. Oy. <laughs> So after the alarm sounded, a guard had stepped outside and checked the fence and saw nothing unusual, and at 8.43, the alarm had been cleared. At 8.55, the prison nurse was arriving for work, and as she reached down to grab her purse out of her car, she noticed movement under a 1965 Chevrolet pickup. She stood up, staring at the truck, and as she watched, a woman crawled out from under the truck 
and walked swiftly out of the parking lot towards the street. <laughs> the nurse watched as the woman sprinted for the wooded area across the street, and she was sure it was Diane Downs. The nurse quickly ran into the office and reported what she'd seen. An emergency count was done immediately. At 8 a.m., there were 126 female prisoners, and at 9.10 a.m., there were 125. Oh, damn. Shit. <laughs> Could you imagine seeing that? Oh, my God. <laughs> like, she said that she thought, I should go after her, but if this is Diane Downs, I cannot take her on by myself. Yeah. She's like, mm, right? Like, no. <laughs> but I need to get a better glimpse of her. Right? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to meet her in the woods. <laughs> no. No. Oh. Oh my god. Diane's cell was sealed off until it could be gone through to see if she had left any clues behind. The towel was retrieved from the yard and the blue striped shirt had been discarded under the truck. Fred Hughie was notified right away, as well as the Salem PD and superintendent of the prison. Fred Hughie contacted Robert Knickerbocker in case she decided to run to him. But his first concern was, of course, making sure the children were safe. They were, and they were in a place where they would continue to be safe. And hopefully she was caught swiftly to not add any extra trauma to those kids. The search began, and there were a couple reports from civilians claiming to have seen her. One woman called and said she was sure she just gave her a ride. Police followed every lead, but she was not turning up anywhere. Diane appeared to be a ghost. She evaded recapture for 10 days. She was being searched for in 14 states. On July 15th, after her cell had been searched multiple times, a guard looked closely at a stack of papers in the cell and could see in the right light that it looked like a map had been drawn on a previous paper. Mm. It was sent to the FBI forensic lab, and they were able to determine that it was indeed a map and there was an address. Ooh, that's so fun. Surveillance was issued immediately for the house. A few men were seen coming and going, but never a woman. On July 21st at 3.06 p.m., five state troopers and two detectives issued a warrant to search the property. Initially, the man that answered the door said it was just him there and then admitted that there was another man and Diane Downs was upstairs. The man that Diane was upstairs with was Wayne Cipher, her prison mate, Louise Cipher's husband. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Diane's at it again. <laughs> Everyone in the house was arrested, obviously. Uh, Diane was finally back in custody. The men were charged with hindering prosecution and then Diane was put in solitary because <laughs> yeah, no more outside time for you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm sure. That was a shock to you. Right. She was able to make a statement for the press. She detailed how she climbed over the fence and went and found Wayne Cipher and how she planned to go and find the actual killer. Well, in those short few days, apparently Wayne fell in love with mm, Diane. Right. He proposed marriage and started the process of fully divorcing his estranged wife, Louise. Oy. And when Louise learned this and that Diane had spent 10 days in bed with her husband, she sung like a canary. I'm sure she did. <laughs> she told investigators that she saw Diane on the other side of the fence and she was the one to set her up with the address where to go, never really thinking anything of it that Diane was just full of shit like she usually was. Diane received an additional five years to her sentence for her escape, and she was moved to the New Jersey Department of Corrections Clinton Correctional Facility for Women as Fred Hughie lobbied the courts to have her moved as she was much too close to her children and what was stopping her from attempting to escape again. Eventually, she was moved to a California Corrections Facility, and while in prison, she was able to complete an associate's degree in general studies. 
Diane had been denied parole in 2008, then again in 2010, and she is set for her next parole hearing sometime this year. And it's going to get denied. Denied, denied, denied. Fucking better. Better. Okay, I'm still, like, wrapped up in this, like, the prison escape because I have so so much to say about it. Because, <laughs> like, yeah. like, first of all, don't ever give Diane Downs a map to your husband. Because, <laughs> like, like, come on. She's notorious for specifically seeking out married men. Like, married men. Even if she's locked up behind bars. Do not provide that information. Just saying. She's like, oh, that's your husband? I think I want to meet him. Yeah. And so she went on to say, you know, her escaping jail, she was going to go to California to find the killer because she knew who it was. She knew the address. The cops just didn't want to look into it because she was behind bars. So they didn't want to go further with it. Yeah. Right. But 10 days later, you're still in a house with a dude. Like, I feel like she was supposed to be there for maybe like a weekend romp and then move on, but she never moved on. So I don't, yeah, I don't think her intentions were actually to, you know, do anything productive other than to seek out. Get out of jail and get laid. (laughs) Yeah. And then she also said in an interview that she didn't think it'd be such a big deal that everybody would freak out about her getting out of jail. Like, oh my God, guys, why are you overreacting? And it was like, because you are a child murderer and you escaped prison. <laughs> you right? took the fence. I mean, for 10 days. Kudos to her for climbing that fence though. I mean. And yeah. as quickly as she did it, like how? True. I mean, <laughs> props to you for that, I guess. <laughs> I guess, but. But that's like the yeah. only impressive thing you've ever done. <laughs> yeah. But you were also like really dumb and didn't notice that someone watched you oh my roll God. up from under that truck, right? That, like that poor nurse. She's just like, God damn, it's going to be one of those days. <laughs> it great. is nine in the morning. <laughs> oh, so... I haven't even gotten into the building yet. And shit's going south. Like, come on. Shit is going down. I have not had my coffee. I am pissed. <laughs> Oh man, it's gonna be a day. It's yeah, be a day. So, so many, many things. things. Anyways, you shall continue. <laughs> <laughs> so she's in prison. She's staying in prison. Yay! Right. So, what happened to Christy, Danny, and Amy Elizabeth? Her mm-hmm. baby born in prison. This is actually the best part of the story. Amy Elizabeth was adopted by a wonderful couple. Her name was changed, and she grew up knowing only love. She did eventually seek out her birth mother, and after writing back and forth in one visit, she saw that Diane was not anyone she wanted in her life, and she walked away and never looked back. But when she first discovered that her mother was notorious child killer Diane Downs, Mm -hmm. she went to a dark place. Like, it was not good. She had to do some real soul searching and digging herself out of like, oh my God, this is where I came from. Mm -hmm. But yeah, she's... She walked away from Diane and she, yeah, she's never looked back. Yeah. And I'm sure that was very difficult meeting and everything, but I'm sure it provided a lot of closure for her to be like, okay, I can walk away from this now and I can move on. Right. Because my actual parents, they love me and they They are are good humans. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Uh, Chrissy and Danny stayed with their foster family for a while and felt safe and loved. And then this is my favorite part. They were both adopted by Fred Hughie and his wife. Aw. I love that. The district attorney that prosecuted the case 
adopted those children. Amazing. That he sat vigil over in the hospital and he protected so fiercely throughout that trial. Love it so much. There'd be nobody better to take care of those kids. That is no, no. And they maintained a great relationship with their foster family. The investigators on their, on the case, like would always come and check in on them. Like fantastic. That's amazing. When Diane escaped, Fred Hughie did what any other parent would have done. He ensured that they were always close and kept them safe. And until she was caught, he kept his 45 on his person 24 hours a day. Yeah. I, yeah. I would too. Could you? Yeah. I cannot imagine nope. the fear of her escaping yeah. and having to protect those kids. Yeah. And he was like, him and his wife discussed it immediately because he got notified right away. Mm-hmm. And they just said like, do we take them and leave? Or do we continue to live our lives as normally as possible? because we don't want to traumatize these kids again. Right. Right. So they did decide to stay home. Mm-hmm. They could have left mm-hmm. and their house was under surveillance, of course, as well. So, yeah. and the one but. time that it's a good thing that Diane did not care about her children because she was too busy with another man that getting laid didn't even cross her mind. So they were safe the whole time. <laughs> yeah. And she had just done an interview shortly before she escaped where she had said, like, the question was like, what would you do? What's the first thing you would do if you ever got out of prison? And she was yeah. like, probably show up at the prosecutor's home and ask to hug my kids. Oh my God. So terrifying. That's, like Fred Hughie knew that. And he's like, okay, so she's going to come here. But no, she's no, like, no, that's, I would rather screw my inmate friend's husband for 10 days. For 10 days. <laughs> yeah. Priorities. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Yeah. What a dirty gutter Muppet. (laughs) (laughs) Those are some words I put together. (laughs) Wow, I like it. Um, Both children had thrived in their school studies. They had wonderful friends and family. They didn't see either of their parents ever again. And they are living their lives perfectly happy. And the most recent update I could find on the kids was that Christy got married. And she became a mama to a baby boy in 2005. And Danny is a computer whiz, still partially paralyzed, but living a happy, normal life. Uh, amazing. Yes. I think that's amazing. the best case scenario of how it could have turned out for them after all of yeah. this. Yeah. And just living a life of love, which mm-hmm. is awesome. They deserve it. Um, my references for this first Small Sacrifices by Anne Rule, Murderpedia, Wikipedia, The Oprah Winfrey Show, um, and The U.S. Sun, and ABC News. Fabulous. So... We did it. Yeah, good job. Damn. (laughs) That was awesome. It's a roller coaster. It sure is. Oh my God. This case. There's so many parts where like Diane just pisses me off to like no end. And then there's also parts that are just like so incredible and exciting, like evidence that just pops up. And it's so, yeah, like you said, roller coaster. Yeah. Everything from start to finish. It's like, oh my God, when it, when did we get off this ride? But like, I like how. I like how it ended. So me too. Absolutely. Yeah. Feelings. Oh, boy. I mean, we, we know most of your feelings. <laughs> Do you have any more insults up my sleeve? Uh, <laughs> she's a sweaty swine liquor. <laughs> a sweaty swine liquor. Yeah. Which yes. Is unique because swine usually don't sweat, but um, 
she makes them. Those poor pigs. Yeah. Those poor pigs. She's so disgusting and intimidating that they start to sweat and then she licks them. (laughs) Okay. Amazing. I'm done. done. Amazing. (laughs) I don't know. Diane, I don't know. We're going to talk about Diane a little bit more and the book in our book club episode. And we're going to talk about yeah. our favorite quotes, which I'm super psyched about because. And our most hated Diane Downs quotes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, mm-hmm. really looking forward to that because I have some notes that I've been taking. Um, <laughs> I've yeah. seen her pages, guys, like pages yeah. of notes. Scribbles. <laughs> but yeah, she says some shit. She says a lot of shit and it's She's- all it's all recorded. So it's amazing. And then she yeah. tries to turn around and be like, I didn't say that. And it's like, nope, you, I never said I that. Think you forget how often you were in front of a camera. It was yeah. like all the time. So pretty much everything you said in that time period is recorded. So yeah, she's terrible. I'm, terrible. I'm excited to talk about some Diane down quotes in our next episode. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm ready for some fluff and stuff. How about you? I am definitely ready for some fluff and stuff. So um, I had a whole bunch of questions that I was like, oh, I'm going to ask that. I'm going to ask that. Lots of them were heat related because I've been melting. But <laughs> um, Alberta's opened up. All of our COVID restrictions are lifted. We're back living in what feels like a normal world, which is awesome. But what are you most excited for with COVID restrictions lifting? It's really hard. I mean. I was pretty good about following the restrictions. Like I really Mm -hmm. haven't seen family. I didn't have Christmas. Like I didn't really do anything. So it's the little things that I'm looking Mm -hmm. forward to. Like I'm looking forward to Mm -hmm. finally seeing my grandparents and like having a normal supper with my family and Mm -hmm. seeing friends and playing sports. And I'm just, it's just the little things that we took for granted before everything shut down. Totally. I'm with you. Like, I know lots of people are like, I'm going to go travel and Mm -hmm. I'm going to go to the stampede and I'm going to go to concerts. And yeah, like those things sound great, but I've been saying it from the get-go. I'm going to hug my grandma. Yeah. And I did get to go see my grandma the other day and I was amazing because I hadn't seen her since November. And that was like a socially distanced, like behind a mask where she can't hear me, doesn't know who I am, like awful visit (laughs) I went yeah and I just yeah it was hard but Mm -hmm. I got to sit next to her and I got to hold her hand and just got to love her and that was great and yeah I got to go for dinner with you the other night like we haven't gone for supper since we like literally started planning murder and Merlot that was like the last time that we went for supper that was probably February of 2020 was the last time we we're able to sit down together and have supper. Yeah. So that was awesome. And yeah, just those Absolutely. little things that, you know, I'm going to be able to sit and have a barbecue with my friends and not feel like, mm-hmm. oh my God, I'm going to get sick and die. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, I'm going to get sick. And then if I go visit my grandparents, then everybody's going <laughs> to I can kill them. Yeah. It sounds if, horrible, but it's always if, in the back of your head. Totally. Or like, when I was a close contact and under quarantine for 14 days, I was like, if I get positive, then that affects my kids' school. Yeah. That affects the play school. That affects like 
so many other things. And then like, mm-hmm. who needs yeah. that guilt in their life? Right. Exactly. It affects everybody that you have seen in the last 14 days, which even though like you don't see very many people, but you go to the store or you do whatever, like, yeah. And it's, you know, it's I'm nice. in the process of trying to sell my house. So like, like I saw a realtor or saw like, right. So exactly. many things like Ugh. crazy, crazy. So I'm looking forward to just less virus anxiety and just mm-hmm. being, just... being with the people that we love. Absolutely. That's, that's what I'm looking yeah. forward to. Great yeah. question. Yeah. All right. Well, make sure to answer our question as well. And obviously, let us know what you think about the episode. And if you have any good Diane Downs insults, please send them our way because... Love it. I mean, we want to know because she needs them. Right. You can email us at murdermerlot at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at murdermerlotpodcast, Facebook at murdermerlotpodcast, and Twitter at murdermerlot1. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. We would love if you subscribed. And if you don't, you're dead to me. And, and our next book reminder because we announced it in our last mini episode our next book that we are covering is midnight in chernobyl by adam higginbotham and we are so excited <laughs> guys it's so good because it is so good completely different than child murder so that's nice 10 out of 10 for that. Yeah. would recommend <laughs> uh i mean lots of people die it's not great but it's incredibly interesting and I can't wait to talk about yeah. it. I sent a Snapchat to my friends the other night. It's like 10 o'clock at night and it's the page in my book is all about nuclear physics. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, just doing a little light reading before bed. And all my friends are like, why? Like, what, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, oh, just picking up a new hobby. You know, like, right? <laughs> Just just learning some nuclear physics. It's fine. What's more weird to people, reading about murder or reading about physics before bed? I, I think coming from me, the physics thing was like, what is happening? Yeah. Are you all right? A hundred percent. I agree. <laughs> and yeah, so I have to take the physics and the smart things and I have to make them make sense. And that's going to be interesting, but I'm here for it. Anybody can do it. You can. I don't know about that, but I'm going to try. I have faith in you. Well, I'm glad somebody does. (laughs) It'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Yes. Well, remember to drink wine. Because it's not good to keep things bottled up. Bye.